Good morning. So let's talk neuroscience. Let's talk psychology. Let's talk human motivation. And, and let's dive in this morning to how those subjects help us to understand what Jesus is trying to accomplish in the parables. Now look, I don't have formal theological training, and I haven't studied Greek and Hebrew like Pastor Adam. And I don't have any degrees in counseling like Pastor John. I mean, I went to school for chemistry and life science, and thank you. <clears throat> and most of my experiences in leadership, especially in a corporate setting, and so when I get a chance to talk, most of you know that it's always a little bit different. And this morning's not going to be an exception. Because I want to look at the factors that motivate us as people and what Jesus wants to do with that. And so this morning, that's where we're going. Let me, let me start us with prayer. Father, I just pray that this morning as we dive into your word and as we look at how it affects us as men and women trying to follow you, that, that we would hear from you, that you would direct us, that you would guide us, and that this would be a good time to have been in your presence. Amen. So in 2009... I just jumped ahead like four slides. That was awesome. In 2009, a guy named David Rock wrote and published two books. And the first was Your Brain at Work, and the second was Coaching with the Brain in Mind. And in those books, he talks about human motivation, and he creates a model called the SCARF model that we're going to dig into a little bit today. Um, in 2009, I bought both of these books, and I read them, and I've just got to tell you, that they are the two books that have captivated my thinking for the last decade, more than anything else I've ever read. And so I hope you get an idea of why that's the case as we talk. Um, his, his SCARF model, S-C-A-R-F, deals with five factors of human motivation. And it, it's based on research. And so what I'd like to do is share the SCARF model with you and use that as the foundation for our time together today. Um, yeah, that's okay. Uh, the SCARF model stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And those five factors, Rock points out, are motivators when we get more of them and demotivators when we get less. Does that make sense? So if, if we get more of something, it, it feels like a reward. If we get less of it, it feels like a punishment or a threat. Let me walk through those five for you. Status. Status has to do with where we are or where we perceive, perceive ourselves with respect to others. So if somebody's here and I'm here, I have lower status. If I'm here, I have upper status, higher status. And as I gain status, my brain believes that's a reward. And if I lose status, my brain treats that as a threat. What about certainty? Certainty refers to our need for clarity, our ability to predict what's going on, what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, a year from now. 
Um, as I was preparing for this, I came across a cartoon. I'll give you just a minute. Now, the funny thing about this cartoon and, and the need for certainty is that the Spectator published this in April of 2019. They had no idea what kind of uncertainty we were going to be facing. But certainty is, is that motivator of being able to predict what's going to happen to us. The A stands for autonomy. And autonomy is tied to our sense of control over the events of our lives. It's the perception that what we do has a direct effect on what happens to us. And it's the belief that we're free to do whatever we want. If we live in a sense of greater autonomy, then that's good for us. Our brains like it. If we live in a sense of lower autonomy, it's taken away from us, then our brains don't like it. The R stands for relatedness, and this one's a little bit different, right? So relatedness has to do with how we're connected to either people that are desirable or groups that are desirable. Um, my favorite way to describe this is to talk about those cliques that existed in high school. For many of us in the workplace, it's not just high school that's got in-groups, but we know that there are in-groups in, in the workplace as well. Whether you get invited to a meeting or not can have quite an effect on your mental well-being. Um, this isn't part of the message, but one other thing about relatedness has to do with sports teams. And it turns out that the St. Louis Cardinals have their first spring training game today. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to get a little bit of a relatedness hit later today when I see the guys with the birds on the bat go onto the field for the first time this spring, right? You, we're associated with a group. We like that. It makes us feel better. And finally, the F stands for fairness. And it refers to, are we treated justly? Are we treated equally? Do we get the praise for the work that we do? Do we get paid a fair pay for the work that we did? That's going to come up a little bit later and be important as we study the scripture. The SCARF model is based on Rock's review of hundreds of different psychological and scientific research papers. And so I want to give you just a sense of what that research looks like. And so I want to do just a, a, a demonstration of an experiment, a game called the ultimatum game. The ultimatum game goes like this. There's two players. There is a proposer and a responder. Okay? And the people running the game give the proposer some money. Now, he didn't have the money when he came in. This is just free money. And the proposer has the responsibility to propose, hence the name, a split of that money. Got it? So the proposer says, hey, I'll split the money this way. And he tells the responder that. And then the responder has the opportunity to accept the proposal. And if the responder accepts the proposal, then the proposer gets what was proposed for him. The responder gets what was proposed for them, and the round is over. But the proposer is not guaranteed that because the responder can also reject the offer. 
And if the responder rejects the offer, then neither the proposer or the responder get any money. Does it make sense? You got it? Let me show you. Let's play around. Um, I will be in the role of the proposer. You all be in the role of the responder, okay? So I get the, the experimenters give us our first amount, which is a whopping $2. I know, it's a, it's a demonstration here. So $2, I'm the proposer, and I propose that you get $1 and I get $1. Now, as the responder, you have to decide, do you accept that proposal? What do you think? You accept it? Yeah. Um, virtually everybody who's ever played the game since the 1960s when it was first played accepts a 50-50 split of the money. Absolutely. Now, like I said, they've been doing this since before I was born, but in the last 15 years or so, they've done something a little bit different. They've played this game and they've taken the responders and put them in an fMRI. It's a brain scanning instrument that allows them to look in real time at what's happening in the brain. And it gives us pretty brain scan pictures like this. And so, as the responder is deciding whether to accept it or not, we can see what's lighting up in his brain. And if we put you in the fMRI and offered you a 50-50 split of $2, that $1 would register in your brain as a reward, as something positive. Um, it, would, it would light up the same areas of your brain. It would activate the same areas of your brain that light up when we get food or water or shelter or sex, anything that we physiologically desire. Same thing with fairness. Okay, let's play another round. Here's the second round, and instead of $2, why don't we split $50? Okay, um, my kids are sitting on the row over here, and they just lit up because, <laughs> right? So we'll split $50. I'm still a proposer. You're still the responder. Here's my proposal. <laughs> Luke, you. Yeah, he's ready to come up and get it. Um, how about if I give you 10 and I keep 40 for myself? It's good to be the proposer in this game. Now, I'm curious, how many of you would accept as the responder a $10, $40 split? Raise your hands. Yeah. Um, when they do this game, it turns out college students, no matter what the split is, will accept whatever they're offered. <laughs> but by the time you get to an 80-20 split of the amount, a majority of responders will reject the offer because it's not fair. Now, a lot of you, um, I, I saw some thumbs down, I saw some head shakes, I saw... Um, you know, it's 10 bucks. I mean, rationally, you should just take it. Um, but it doesn't, it turns out it doesn't matter whether you accept it or reject it. When you're offered an unfair split, the brain scans show a different area of your brain that becomes active. The brain scans show the area of threat or danger. 
It's the same area that lights up when you're confronted with a stray dog or when you're confronted with somebody with a gun. It's the same area that lights up as the psychological effects of physical pain. We perceive unfair offers. We perceive unfair offers as a threat. So if you do a Google search of status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness, you have to to search all five words together. Don't search just one at a time or you'll get a whole bunch of unrelated results. But if you search those five words together, you will get over 60,000 responses, 60,000 results, and almost all of them have to do with David Rock's model. So I'm not the only one that in the last 10 years has been fascinated and captivated by thinking about this. And so I just want to tell you three reasons why this has been at the front of my mind for as long as it has. The first is that this, this model, this theory, lies at the center, the overlap of science and leadership and coaching. And since those are three of my favorite things, I'm just fascinated by it. I mean, I just think it's really cool. The second reason is because it fits human behavior. I mean, it really is useful. And so if I'm leading a company that's integrating with another company, really being mindful of how the people are experiencing their status, their certainty, their autonomy, their relatedness, and how fair the process is, is really important. The third reason that I thought so much about this is because it bothers me. I mean, it, from the moment I read his books has bothered me that that's how our brains work. Especially since pursuing status, pursuing and insisting on autonomy, I mean, those seem to go against what Christ calls us to. And so, I've, I've thought about it, and I've taught on it. I've taught two different base camp, base camp classes, um, six-week classes on it. Um, a few years ago, some of you were at family camp when we talked about this. Um, I even got a chance to talk to 200 human resource leaders at an international conference. And even in that corporate setting, what I shared was what the Bible has to say about these five factors. And to make it memorable, I've I've shaped the biblical responses to these factors with the same acronym SCARF that David Rock used. So I want to share with you the comparison SCARF to what David Rock has put together. How about status? Instead of status, Jesus calls us to servanthood right? I love the passage in Mark. So as the disciples arrived at Capernaum and settled into a house, Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. So he sat them down and he called the 12 disciples over and he said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. 
disciples are arguing about status, not just here, but several other places in Scripture, and Jesus points them in the opposite direction. He says, you have to be servants. Instead of certainty, Jesus calls us to live in covenant. What's the difference? Jesus says in John, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. In John 14, he says, there is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That's a promise. That's a covenant that we can build our lives on that changes our perspective about certainty. What about autonomy? Instead of autonomy, Jesus teaches authority. Not just any authority, but proper authority. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. The New Testament has a lot to say about proper authority, and none of it supports a do-whatever-you-want kind of autonomy. None of it supports the autonomy that our brains seem to desire. I think that may be why sermons on submission to each other are so difficult sometimes. Instead of relatedness, that association with popular people or popular groups, Jesus teaches us about authentic relationships, both with him and with each other. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And we could spend the rest of the morning talking about how we're to love God and love each other. That would be fun to do another time. Instead of fairness, instead of fairness. Okay, this is a tough one. Um, honestly, for about 10 years, I really wrestled with what about instead of fairness? Um, I couldn't come up with quite the right word. I, um, it's a little bit different. I mean, you don't want to say that God's unfair. And, and so I really wrestled with this. In fact, in every time that I describe that I've taught it, I didn't have the word. You guys are the first public time that I've got the right word. And it came from the last time I taught base camp. I threw out the problem to a group of high school students. And, and one of my friends, Garrett Warnock, came up with the perfect word. And I'm going to tell it to you a little bit later. <laughs> but first, let's look at Jesus' teaching on fairness. Because Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who goes out to hire workers for his vineyard. And he goes out early in the morning, probably 6 a.m., and he agrees with the workers to pay them a day's wage, and he sends them out to the field to work. Now, this parable that we're going to look at is in response to a discussion that had been going on between Jesus and the disciples. In fact, the parable is taught, it looks like, only to the disciples. And the discussion really centers around the question of fairness. In fact, I'll point you to 
Matthew 19, verse 27, right in the middle of discussion about fairness, Peter says, of course it's Peter. Peter says, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? In other words, is this fair? Was this a good decision? Now, in chapter 19, Jesus goes on to assure them that whoever has followed him, when the world is made new, will receive positions of status as judges, and they will receive a hundredfold return on anything that they've given up to follow Jesus. He says, it's worth it, but not necessarily in the way the world thinks. In fact, chapter 19 ends with this verse. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be greatest then. Maybe Jesus saw that the disciples still didn't get it. Because immediately following this conversation, he teaches this parable, starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. And I just want to read you the parable Listen for the elements of fairness. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and he sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them that he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one has hired us. The landowner, the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. So that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. And when those hired, when those hired first, no, verse nine is an important verse. Let's get it. When those hired at five o'clock, those are the guys that had only worked one hour, were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people only worked one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Did you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay the last worker the same as you. It is, a, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then. And those who are first will be last. And when I read this parable, it sounded a lot to me like the ultimatum game. In fact, I'll bet if we took the all-day workers and we put them in an fMRI, that their brains would register pain and threat. But was it unfair? 
It's not hard for me, and I'm guessing it's not hard for you, to put myself in the place of the all-day worker. It doesn't seem fair, and my brain wants fairness. I've been the guy in the school group project, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes it's just not fair. But Jesus addresses this question directly in the parable. The landowner says to the all-day workers, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? So the landowner hasn't been unfair to the all-day workers. They agreed to the terms. They got what was promised. It was entirely fair. But let's look at the late-day workers. Here, the landowner is more than fair. He hires those that have been waiting all day. Now, some commentaries point out that no one had hired them because they probably weren't the most desirable workers. Or maybe they had a reputation that was for not working hard. Or maybe they just didn't look like they could stand the hot sun all day. Whatever the reason that they hadn't been hired, they had been passed over all day by the owners who were hiring workers. They didn't deserve a job, but the landowner gives them work because he's more than fair. And when it's time to pay the workers, the landowner is more than fair. Fair would have been paying the last workers hired one-twelfth of a day's wage. That's what they'd worked proportionally. They hadn't worked a full day. They hadn't earned a full day's pay. He pays them much more. He's more than fair. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. This parable and the whole of the gospel show us that you and I are treated more than fair. Like the last hired workers, when we follow Jesus, we receive undeserved and unearned rewards. We may not receive status the way the world sees it, but we get something more the chance to become a beloved servant of the one true God. We may not have certainty about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year, but we have something more. The assurance of a covenant that will never end. We don't have the autonomy to do whatever we want. We'd surely make a mess of it if we did. In its place, God provides more. A life under the proper loving authority of God. We don't seek relatedness with a popular person or a desired group. We might not be in the in crowd. But following Jesus, we get so much more a personal relationship with God and real relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, what about fairness? We don't have to settle for mere fairness. We don't get exactly what we deserve. We don't get exactly what we've earned. (laughs) Thank God. No, we're offered so much more. We receive the abundant mercy and grace of God. It reminds me of the Reliant K lyric, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. In a word, though we don't deserve it and we haven't earned it, We receive God's favor. That's the word that Garrett came up with. Favor, mercy, grace. 
So how does this happen? How do we go from thinking the way the world thinks to pursuing the things of God? The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Christians begin to think differently. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says it this way, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the NIV. I started with that because that's the way that I learned it. That's the way it's up here. But I love the way it's translated in the NLT. In the New Living Translation, it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And that's the key phrase, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That's what we're talking about. I think David Rock was right in describing the way the worldly think. Their pursuit of status and certainty and autonomy and relatedness and fairness is not what we're called to. Christ calls us to think differently and to live accordingly. So let me ask you, How's your transformation going? Jesus told this parable to transform his disciples into new people by changing the way they were thinking. My prayer for us is that we would let God transform us into the people that he wants us to be by changing the way that we think. This transformation affects the way we think about every aspect of life. It transforms our thinking about politics, candidates and campaigns. It transforms our thinking about racial tensions and discrimination and privilege. It transforms our thinking about church and worship and evangelism. It transforms our thinking about family and friends and neighbors. In fact, last week, John taught us that it even transforms our way of thinking about who is our neighbor. And it transforms our thinking about work and purpose and calling. Jesus wants to transform everything about the way we think. But Jesus offers so much more. We're all sinners. We're all separated from God. Jesus died to pay that price for our sins in full. That's a price that we can't pay no matter how many good things we do. Jesus rose to life again. We call that the resurrection. And we can have a personal relationship with him. God's favor, his mercy and grace are offered to anyone who will accept it. So if you're here or if you're watching and you haven't accepted Christ's offer of salvation, a salvation that he purchased with his own blood for you, I encourage you to do that today. In a little bit, I'm going to close in prayer. And that would be a perfect time to trust Jesus with your life. It'd be a perfect time to accept his offer of salvation. And yeah, it'd be a perfect time to let the Holy Spirit begin to transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This week, the tragic death of Jeffries gave us a glimpse of what this transformation looks like. 
Jeff lived as a servant. He embraced the eternal covenant of the gospel. Christ's authority directed his steps. Those of us who were fortunate enough to count him a friend and call him a brother in Christ, we're all better for having had him in our lives. And so this is really personal for me. I'm sure I'm not the only one this week that has called out and groans, this is not fair. It's not fair. But this week, Jeff, who was always ready to put himself last for the sake of the gospel, became the first of us to experience God's favor in its fullness. What a beautiful example. As we conclude, it seems more than fair to let Peter have the last word this morning. After all, he got us started with the whole, we've given up everything to follow you, what will we get? Can you imagine asking that directly to Jesus? Actually, maybe you have. A lot's happened to Peter between the time he first asked Jesus, what do we get? And the time when he writes the book of 1 Peter. He's experienced the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's seen time and again God work in and through his obedience. In Paul's language, Peter is no longer transformed Conformed to the way of the world, he's transformed by the renewing of his mind. Here's how Peter describes God's favor in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, for your sacrifice and your salvation. I pray specifically right now for those that have not yet started a relationship with you. I pray that this morning they could confess their sins and accept your salvation and begin a wonderful lifelong journey. God, I pray for those of us that have been walking with you for a while that you would continue the process of transformation so that we think the way that you want us to think and so that we become the people you want us to be. You leave us here on this earth to be representatives for you and to point those around us to your glory. 
I pray that this morning we would do that. In your name.